you have to ask yourself, the, the value of the left hemisphere is how much do I get? How much do I have? It wants more, it wants more, it wants more. The left brain uh, personalities are always wanting more. They're either want more money, they want a bigger house, they want more money than you have, uh, they want to be higher on that ladder. They, you know, it's always more and more and more and comparing it to everybody else. And it's like, at what point is enough enough? And to me, I made the decision that being alive and being a bright light in the world was enough. And then it has proven to be enough. Wouldn't it be a different world if that's how we lived our lives? Okay. All right. Here we Perfect. are. Here we are. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm really excited for this conversation. Looking forward to Thank it. Thank you, Eric. I'm, I've been looking forward to it too. Great. Great. So I guess to start out, we need to just kind of assume that, you know, people, people may or may not know who you are, what your work is. And I think it'd be good to start with sort of a general overview of who you are and what you do. And then I'd really like to start getting into some, I don't know, really, I, I consider it like unmined gold. It's, I think there's a lot of really interesting implications of the work you're doing. And I have a lot of questions and a lot of areas I want to explore about everything from enlightenment to relationships to, I don't know what, there's just a lot here. So we'll see how far we get. But if you wouldn't mind starting out by just telling us who you are, what you do, what who is- Who am I? I am Jill Bolte-Taylor. I am a trained and published neuroanatomist. Uh, at the age of 37, back in 1996, I'm sure everybody's doing math right now. Uh, I had, I was a brain scientist at Harvard studying how does our brain create our perception of reality? And I cared about this because I have a brother who is 18 months older than I am, who has been diagnosed with the brain disorder, schizophrenia. And I wanted to understand at a biological cellular level, what are the differences between my brain and my brother's brain? So I was at Harvard Medical School teaching and performing research. And we were looking at uh, different cell populations, different populations of people, people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective, OCD, um, bipolar disorder, and comparing that brain tissue under the microscope to the brain tissue of individuals who would be diagnosed as normal control. So I was a cellular neuroanatomist looking at which cells communicate with which other cells, with which chemicals, and in what quantities of those chemicals. So I care about the cellular network of the human brain. So that's how I think. I think in terms of cells and circuits. At the same time, I was teaching and I was doing um, teaching at Harvard uh, School of Dental Medicine, head and neck uh, anatomy. So I was teaching these different circuits to the, the future physicians and uh, uh, dentists of the world. So that's what I was doing. And then I woke up one morning and I experienced a major hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of my own brain. And over the course of four hours, I watched my own left hemisphere break down circuit by circuit to the point that that afternoon I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my previous life. I described myself as an infant in a woman's body. And then it took uh, uh, eight years, surgery, um, surgeons went in two and a half weeks after the, the hemorrhage, removed a blood clot the size of a golf ball. Uh, push, pushing pressure on that left hemisphere and said, go away. We won't know anything about how you're going to recover for two years. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was then my job to figure out, well, how do I rebuild my own neural circuitry? And uh, it took eight years for me to decide that I was 100% back. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I wrote a book titled my stroke of insight. It went out in 2008. I ended up, uh, I gave a Ted talk. It was the first Ted talk that ever went viral on the internet. So Ted and I, my claim to fame is that Ted and I got famous together. Uh, <laughs> and then I was chosen as one of time magazines, 100 most influential people in the world for 2008, which was a fascinating perspective, uh, at for scientists who'd been through what I'd been through. So uh, since that time, I've been trying to figure out how to really communicate with other people. What did I learn about the human brain uh, in the absence of having that left hemisphere? And so last year I published uh, my second book titled uh, Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters That Drive Our Life. And in this book is really, what did I gain? What did I learn about how our brain organizes information uh, at a cellular level and uh, uh, the power that we have to pick and choose who and how we wanna be in the world on a daily basis. So that's kind of who I am and what I'm up to. Great, great, thank you, thank you. And if, if you wouldn't mind, if we could just zoom in a little bit on the experience of the stroke. Right. So from, from whole brain living, which is a great book, by the way, really, really enjoyed reading it. You said, I perceived myself as a gigantic ball of energy that blended fluidly with the rest of the energy in the universe. Right? Yes. So that's, I mean, what most people would call a spiritual experience. It's like Nirvana. It's, you know, the, the self. And, and that is language. Um, and, and, you know, language, language, I think is everything. It's uh, about how, how do we communicate about everything? Um, and I communicate about this experience through, through the language of the brain, because that's all I really, that's my reference point. And, um, uh, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, I had a spiritual experience. Um, a lot of people, um, would say I, I had enlightenment. I described the space that I went to as Nirvana, mm -hmm. uh, which of course is a, um, a spiritual language. Uh, I also refer to it as La La Land, uh, which is not, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, but but that kind of boils down the issue of the relationship between the left brain and the right brain. The left brain uh, has language. The right mm -hmm. brain does not have language. And so as we peel off those circuits, so, so um, on the morning of the stroke, uh, as I go through this four hour experience, essentially over the course of that four hours, um, I was I was bleeding out. I had the hemorrhage probably around eight in the morning. And by noon, uh, I was unconscious arriving at Mass General Hospital uh, in their emergency room. So during that course of four hours, I was having a small bleed and the blood then was expanding itself throughout my left hemisphere and brain and brain cells, uh, blood is toxic. It's a poison to brain cells. It, uh, instantaneously interrupts their ability to communicate with one another, mm -hmm. uh, because there's this very delicate, uh, uh, molecular balance between the potassium and the sodium for neurons to be able to communicate with one another. So if you've got blood in there, the blood is going to at least uh, disrupt their ability to communicate and at most actually kill 
uh, neurons. Uh, and once neurons are gone, uh, they're pretty much gone. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it was for four hours, it was breaking down the circuitry and the abilities that I had through that left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere is, uh, has groups of cells that do very specific things. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of that four hours, then I got to witness that ongoing deterioration. Yeah. Uh, after that four hours, when I awoke later that afternoon, all I had was the present moment experience because the right hemisphere doesn't have linearity of time. It doesn't have methodical thinking. It doesn't have sequencing of events. It has nothing but the right here, right now in all of its rich deliciousness. And that in that also disappeared the boundaries of my perception of myself, which requires a group of cells in the parietal region of the left hemisphere. So I didn't perceive myself to begin and end at my skin at where it meets the air. So mm -hmm. I felt this open, expansive experience of being at one with all that is shifted into the consciousness of the present moment, which is connected to all energy. So I perceived myself <clears throat> excuse me, to be an, an energy ball, a ball of energy, mm -hmm. kind of uh, sweltering around this organic mass of potential debris. Hmm. Wow. wow. So <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of really interesting implications there, especially for people who are, are interested in, in achieving that sort of state. I think we'll, we'll leave that for a little bit later on. Um, <laughs> The but, organic but, debris or <laughs> no more, more the, the boundless ball of energy. I think that's, that's yeah. a little more. Yeah. But, but I guess I'm just curious. I've, I've never actually heard you describe what that recovery process was like. Was that sort of linear bit by bit, or was it very quickly you were regained language and then got the details later on? Like how long were you without language, without a sense of, of self in conventional terms? So if you look at what is actually going on in the left hemisphere, those are two of the circuits. Uh, one is language and language is a very complex structure. There's the ability to create sound dog. Dog is a sound that circuitry. You have to be able to have that in order to speak. Mm -hmm. um, there's another group of cells that places meaning on the sound. When I say dog, you have you have either a, a flash of a picture of a dog you know or the letters D-O-G. Uh, also in language is the alphabet. We have to begin with the alphabet in order to organize the alphabet into words, into sentences. Sentences have semantics. Semantics has linearity. So language is a natural byproduct of that linear thinking ability of that left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So language was uh, part of it. But language, you have to break down into all of these different pieces. Then you have to be able to read. You have to be able to, to uh, comprehend. Um, so that's a lot of different circuits in there. Um, another circuit is, is in there somewhere comes an ego that says, I, I am an individual. I am separate from the atoms and molecules and the energy ball that is around me. And a part of that I am 
then we call that the ego. And where I become kind of the center of the universe, the center of my universe, and I have a past and I have a future and I have likes and I have dislikes. So everything that defines me as the individual ego centric center of the universe, that's also in that left hemisphere, as well as then that boundaries of where do I begin and where do I end and then a whole bunch of other little things. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of things going on in there. And over that course of eight years, what I did was I put a big sheet of paper on my, my door. And every time I realized that I knew something, something made sense inside of me that didn't make any sense before I wrote it. I just listed it with a date. And Hmm. at some point I would, you know, do something with sharing this information, which ended up being in my stroke of insight, the book. So for example, for, for math, people would say to me literally for four years, Jill, what's one plus one? What's one plus one? And they'd always do this, you know, a one, a one, a one, a one, a one, it's everything. And I think to myself, well, if a one is everything, then how can you have another one? I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. I didn't have the capacity to take a abstract symbol Mm -hmm. and place a meaning on that and I just didn't have that capacity. And it was four wow. years before I, I even could understand that. So, so it was a, it was a long, slow process, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the thing about recovery from anything neurological trauma is we're in a hurry, uh, you know, but neurons are not in a hurry and neurons, once they're disrupted, if they don't know what the ultimate goal is, I may know what the goal is, but if they don't know what the goal is, they have to find their way back into communicating with one another in a way so that I can become functional that way. So it wasn't that 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 math had had been kind of closed off for me. Math was gone for me. I had to actually rebuild new structure in order to to regain that capacity. And it took four years for for my brain to figure it out. So it was kind of like layering and layering and layering, adding new new circuit. Oh, Mm -hmm. oh, this makes sense. And so in the beginning, I learned that um, I either had to, because I had virtually no energy. Um, Mm -hmm. I I describe myself as, as an infant in a woman's body from a cognitive capacity, but from an energetic capacity. I was not in this. I I was, I was not, uh, dense in this body able to control and move it. I was, uh, in the beginning, I was just felt like a ton of lead. I had no energy whatsoever. And I learned that any energy that I did have, I had to either spend it on physical, doing something physical to try to get my body rehabilitated, uh, just rolling over, just the concept of rocking your body is like, oh my gosh, that takes an amazing amount of energy and an amazing amount of focus of the brain just to be able to get the body to do something. So I had to to choose, do I do something cognitive today? Uh, Do I try to read a book today? Do I try to look at a sound, a letter and create a sound today? Or, or do I try to walk today? I mean, it was, uh, energy became a very precious, uh, commodity. Wow. Wow. And what was that like for you emotionally? 
you know, I was fine. Um, I had lost my left hemisphere emotional cells. Uh, so those were the cells that would say um, anything about my past or any about my future. So all of my emotions from the past, they were gone. All my emotions and fears of the future, they were gone. And all I had was the present moment. And the present moment's a magnificently beautiful experience. I mean, eating a banana and actually paying attention to the, the texture in your hands and looking, the uh, it's a banana. It's a beautiful thing. And the skin, and the skin is an amazing thing. And it's got those stringies in it. And it's like, I mean, you know, it's like, wow, you can spend a whole hour admiring the, the magnificence of the banana. And then you take a bite and it explodes in your mouth. I mean, the mm -hmm. experience of the present moment is so rich. Um, I was happy. My mother, you know, my mother would look at me. I'd be sitting on the couch and she'd say, child, she always called me child. It didn't matter how old I was. Child, how can you be so happy? I mean, I would be sitting there drooling, but with a grin on my face because it was like, it didn't matter to me. I wasn't making any of those judgments that the left hemisphere makes. So it didn't matter that I had fallen off the Harvard ladder from, you know, climbing this beautiful system to, you know, a drooling body in the bed. It didn't matter because what I gained and whenever, whenever you meet someone who is different, the question should be, well, what has this person gained? Not what have they lost? Hmm. Uh, because what I gained was, oh my gosh, presence, presence and present awareness and just the awe, oh my God, that I exist at all. And I would weep and I would weep because it was so magnificent and, and certain scientists in the world think that when we weep, when we have that kind of damage, it's because we're sad and we're, you know, we're in Bummerville and it's like, oh no, it's the awe that, oh my God, I'm alive and I exist at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And who wants to lose that? Yeah, not me. <laughs> that sounds like a you great know, place to it's be. It's one thing then to recover and, and gain back and build back into, but I, I never wanted to recover and sacrifice what I had gained. And yeah. fortunately, all these years later, I've managed to hold on to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, uh, I think it's very evident just in the way you speak, you know, the, the, the way you live your life as well. You've, I mean, you've, you've got something great going on. You're, you're not just, you know, a scientist stuck in a lab. You're, you're a human being living a rich life and you've got joy coming out of every pore, you know, and that's. <laughs> yes, I'm exuding, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. I know it's like, <laughs> and I really, you know, I really learned what that means. I really learned what it means to, to be dull and to, um, uh, even though my body was dull, my, my vastness became so bright and it's like, you know, is there any way I can ever squeeze that back inside of this tiny little body in order to get it to function again? And it's like somehow or another, I got it squeezed back in and now it's just like, Ooh, I wish everybody could have this experience, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, in, in your, your book, uh, sort of, helps us along the way, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's taking the insights that you gained and really trying to help us understand, okay, how does our brain work? How can we access this type of awareness, energy, whatever you want to call it when appropriate, right? So it's not- exactly. 
Yeah. Because we're wired for it. You know, I didn't um, uh, I, I didn't go anywhere other than inside of my own brain somewhere. And mm -hmm. I what happened was certain modules of cells got shut down. The left hemisphere thinking, rational thinking, it got shut down. That character mm -hmm. disappeared for me. Uh, the emotion from my past and future, that part died. Mm -hmm. um, it began again. It got rebooted so that now I do have that new emotions. But I don't have any emotions before the age of 37, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, I have to say in its own way, lovely to wipe out all the trauma from my childhood. I'm mm -hmm. grateful for that. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I, I have new uh, that circuitry is back online, but in the absence of that, that left brain, what's going on in our right hemisphere? And we don't exist in a society that values what's going on in the right brain as much as what's going on in the left brain. And I'm not saying the right brain's better. What I'm saying is whole brain living is why we have a whole brain. Uh, and, and to me, the next step in the evolution of humanity is getting both of these beautiful hemispheres, not just online, but communicating with one another and having relationships in between these different parts of ourselves so that we really can evolve into our best selves and live the life that we want to live. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into it then. Let's, I mean, so we've got four characters, one, two, three, and four. And yes. one and two are on the, oh God, left Here side. Here we of the go. Brain. This will be fun. <laughs> uh, three, three and four are the right. And yeah. can, can you just give us a, a quick overview of sort of what these characters are, how they function? Yes. Of. So as, as you think about the human brain, um, the difference between a reptile and a mammal is uh, through the, the time of evolution as life goes on, new tissue gets added on top of old tissue. Mm -hmm. So the reptile has essentially the sophistication of, of our brainstem. And there's a lot of on off switches. I'm hungry, I eat, I'm done. I wanna mate, I mate, I'm done. Um, so that's pretty much what's going on in the reptile. Add on new tissue on top of that, and that be that's the limbic, the emotional tissue of 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 mammals. It's so animals have bilateral, some on each side, limbic or emotional tissue, and then add on top of that more tissue on both sides, and you end up with thinking tissue on both the right and the left for the human. So the difference between um, a human and a typical mammal is the addition of this thinking, higher executive functioning tissue that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental difference, so, so in each hemisphere, we have emotional cells and we have thinking cells. So what are the differences between those? Well, what's the fundamental difference between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere? The right hemisphere is right here, right now. That's all it is. The right here, right now experience of, of the present moment. There is no past. There's no future. If I'm talking to you and I just have a right hemisphere, then I can engage with you in the present moment. But as soon as I turn my back to you, you simply don't exist for me anymore. It's not because I don't like you. It's because you are in now in my past and my new present is now what is in front of me. So life in the present moment is a completely different experience of having the past and the future. So the right hemisphere is right here, right now versus the left hemisphere, which has a past and a future. So character one and character two are my left brain, 
character one is left brain thinking. And this has a past and it has a future. And it also in there, it's going to have language. So the ability to speak dog, dog is a sound. I place meaning on the sound. There's language. I can learn an alphabet. I can put alphabet letters together, come up with words. I can learn to read. I can learn to write. It's highly sophisticated. There's mathematics, more abstract language. So uh, there's also the boundaries of where I begin and where I end. So mm -hmm. I, the individual, have an ego. I also have the boundaries of me as a body and I relate me to the external world. So character one is that thinking, rational, organized, structured, loves to create order, controls people, places, things, defines what is right, defines what is wrong, defines what is good, defines what is bad, uh, can tends to be a perfectionist because it wants its way and it likes to be the boss. Do you recognize that part of yourself, Eric? Yeah, it's, I can see it there sometimes, for sure. <laughs> oh, there's a little in there, he said. So that's character one, left thinking tissue. Left emotional tissue is going to be all of our pain and all of our pleasure from the past and all of our projection of fear or anxiety into the future. Mm -hmm. So all of our experiences are in that emotion of the left hemisphere. So this is the part of us that, again, it's about me, the individual. If I'm not happy, I'm going to blame you or I'm going to blame myself. So I might have self-loathing. I might hate you because I'm actually looking, the left brain is uh, um, by definition looking for our differences instead of our similarities. And in that emotional tissue, it's in the alarm, alarm, alert, alert. So anything that I have from my past that gave me pain or brought me fear, then I can bring that into the present moment in order to learn from the past that that's not safe. So we have this alarm alert related to the past and related to the future. So that's going to be our little character too. Mm -hmm. Our character three is the emotion of the present moment tissue. And you got to remember, these are cells. This isn't me just making up a pattern response. These are cells in the brain and the way that the brain organizes itself and in information. Mm -hmm. So we have this limbic tissue in the right here, right now, and it's experiential. What does it feel like to, to bite into that banana? What is the texture like? And what is the explosion of taste as I'm, as I'm, I experience that or as I dive into the water and I feel the pressure of the water against my body and the temperature against my body. And it's an adrenaline junkie because it likes experience and, and it's a high risk taker. It's like, yeah, I want high risk and I want to take you with me mm -hmm. because the right brain isn't about me, the individual. It's about us as humanity. And it's kind of collective and it likes to work on committees. It actually likes to work on committees <laughs> and it likes to work in groups, you know, it likes those team projects. It likes to play games together. It likes to be in the presence of others because it has this perception of how am I engaging in the collective whole? And because it doesn't define what is right and wrong or good and bad, it's creative and it's interested and it's innovative and it's, it's entrepreneurial and it's new possibilities. Um, and then there's the thinking tissue in the present moment right here, right now, character four. And this is the part of us that is simply in the background, constantly observing everything. And oh my God, it's that, oh my God, awe that I'm alive. I'm alive. I mean, when you really stop and you think 
I'm not just alive in a single cell separated by a semi-permeable membrane between an internal and an external. You got to take that cell and multiply it 50 trillion times in order to be what I am. It's like, wow, I've got eyes and eye cells that can see and I got hearing system and I got motor system so I can move around. And, and you know, it's like, wow. And, and this is the part of many of our personalities that we're kind of missing. How many, when was the last time you just really looked yourself in the mirror and said, oh my gosh, I'm alive. Wow. I mean, that's where we begin. And if we begin with the, oh my gosh, I'm alive. Wow. Then it's like, how do I bring the rest of me? How do I engage the other parts of my brain so I can create the life I want to create, the life I want to live? Yeah, and in, in your book, you you summarize I think really really nicely when you you talk about the, the the brain's relationship to the body, right? And so part one would see the body as kind of like a tool. Character two would see it as a responsibility. Character three would see it as a toy or a game, yeah. and part four would see it as a temple. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and these groups of cells work together to give us function. And although I lost my left hemisphere, what I gained then was just the clarity of what are the functions of these two different groups of cells in the right hemisphere. And as you, and brought that into my consciousness, because that's all I had, I didn't have any of that left brain stuff to kind of place judgment on it. Mm -hmm. And so once I recovered the whole brain and I started regaining uh, academic and scholastic education, what I'm realizing is these are the four archetypes. These are the four archetypes of all of us. Well, what makes an archetype? An archetype is, is a tried and true over an enormous expanse of time, stereotypical traits and behaviors that work together that we humans have. And the only difference between what I'm saying and what essentially Carl Jung said was, we can make them all conscious. In his language, one of them is conscious, and then three of them is in uh, is our unconscious. And it's like, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's a, a really crucial point. I want to zoom in on that if if possible. So so in Jung's system, character one would be the persona, character two would be the shadow, character three would be the animus or the anima, and character four would be the true self. Right. And so um, I think in a system like like IFS, which uses very similar language about parts and things like that, you might see part one as like the manager, part two would be the firefighter, and three and four would be some sort of combination of, of the self. Right. And I, I don't want to get into these systems in detail, just using that for reference for people who are already familiar. But I think in these systems and in every system I know, there's a privilege to part four, sometimes to part three, part four. Being in the present moment, being sort of engaged with with what's happening right here right now is is privileged in spiritual traditions and psychological traditions it's um it's something that that many millions of people aspire to achieve and dedicate their lives to achieving right and so to me the the part of your work that is the most captivating the most interesting the most exciting is that it it seems to really challenge that idea and it it says yes character 4 is amazing character 3 is amazing but so is character 2 and character 1 and it's not about living in, in nirvana all the time. It's about yeah. integrating the brain and being able to, to, to connect with every part of it when appropriate and, and when necessary. And that to me is you know, it's a radical proposition. Well, you know, I'm the first to say that's all I had. 
I know how absolutely magnificent and completely non-effective being a character four can be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's blissful. It's fantastic. It's important to know that that's what I am. But if I know that that's what I am and I live my life as a character three, a character two and a character one consciousnesses and abilities on top of knowing that I am as big as the universe. And oh, my gosh, life is so uh, awe inspiring and an incredible thing to just be that is to be completely non-effective. I mean, I, I, you know, I was laying in bed the other, other morning, just that's my kind of my, when I wake up, that's my time. You know, I love being in that zone. So um, I was, you know, people have been asking me what fundamentally, what's the fundamental difference between a character three and a character four. And I thought I was thinking about it and I was just kind of like being a lump. And I thought, you know, a character four uh, has no action. The character four has no action. It's simply good with what is because, oh, my God, it's alive. It doesn't need to be any more than alive. It is awe inspired by its own existence. Mm -hmm. So the the egg cell. So so character four is kind of like the egg cell. So the egg cell that grew into you eventually from your mother, that egg cell took form when you were in your grandmother's womb. Your mother's, your mother, your grandmother became uh, fertile uh, and your little mother's body was about the size of a pea. And during the fifth week of your mother's gestation, the little egg cell that would eventually evolve into you, it took form. So the little egg cell, the DNA that would become you and from the mother end of things, it existed for the rest of the eight months of your mother's gestation in your grandmother's womb. And then you were in your mother's ovary throughout her life until the age and that you were ovulated and you were fertilized. Well, that's pretty profound, right? But what's it doing? Well, it's profound because life is profound. And for that long in your existence, your little cell existed. So it's like, wow, for decades, you probably existed for decades before you were, you know, fertilized. Mm -hmm. So that's the egg cell. The egg cells hanging out in the ovary and every, you know, once a month, uh, the the hormones swoop by and one of your fellow uh, egg cells, it's their turn and boom, out they go. And eventually it's your turn and boom, out you go. But what are you, where are you going, right? You got the fallopian tubes, they're gathering you up and, and off you go. So, um, and then you were one of the lucky ones. Wow, you were one of the lucky ones. I mean, oh my God, if that doesn't blow your mind, what does? The odds you had to, you had to beat in order to be here. Anyway, that was a little tangent. But that's the point is that, you know, here you are, the miracle of your life, your existence. So that's kind of character four. It's just like, uh, it's just present. It's all it is. It, it has, it, it, it's genetically programmed with an intention once it gets out and it's on its journey, but mm, that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at the sperm cell and the sperm cell. Now that's intention, right? Here you got this tiny little threads of DNA, which is more like a virus, right? Packaged with a little tail and it's got intention and it's all, it's got a race. It's, it's got competition. It's got a race. It's got a, a task. It's got a journey. It's got it's going, it's going. And that impetus of movement just with that little motility is the character three. Mm -hmm. Without a character three, there's no action. The character four 
is the blissful euphoria of existence. But the character three is now take that blissful euphoria of existence and give it motion. Wow. Now we're in motion. Now it's like possibility. No right, no wrong, no good, no bad. Just go, right? Go. So that's uh, that's kind of how I look at the, the three and the four. And then on top of that, you add an emotion. Now we, we, we become human. We become a bridge across time because otherwise I'm right here right now. And I'm just like a sperm then. I'm just like, you know, swimming around doing whatever I'm doing. And as long as I'm alive, and there's no structure and there's no order and we have chaos and that's great for possibility, but you have to have the structure if you're going to become a functional person or a functional society. And that's the beauty of what that left hemisphere does. It gives us the emotion of the past. So I can say, oh, you know, uh, uh, when I was a child, that kind of a dog bit me or that kind of a snake bit my brother and he died. Let's, you know, put me back on the plane somewhere. And so I know that that's a dangerous snake. So now 50 years later, I see a snake like that. I know I don't want to let that snake bite me because it killed my brother 50 years ago. So that's the the ability to learn and to, to gain information across time, the magnificence of the whole brain. So yes, the ultimate goal is whole brain living. It's like we have all these different groups of cells. Let's use them all and let's integrate them so that they actually converse with one another. And I make decisions based on all of my brain, not just based on uh, what I'm experiencing in, uh, in, in a moment. Yeah. Uh, and again, another just striking parallel there when you're talking about the, the four and the three, that really uh, parallels very closely, like the conception of, of yin and yang or Shakti and Shiva energy in, in the tantric system of masculine and feminine energy. And, and again, we see in a spiritual uh, sort of, way of approaching the world, we're just on the right side, right? We're, we're not using the left side at all. Shakti would be just pure pure presence and being, and Shiva is, is about action and activity. And, and when those two combine, you're seen as like a spiritually whole being, right? But yeah. again, in your conception, it's, that's half of the brain, right? And, and all of these, these traditions are well, almost all of them are developed in sort of isolation from society, right? You have to go to a monastery, you have to go meditate for 20 years, you have to go live on the top of a mountain. And I think for for most all of us who are interested in in pursuing these kinds of things, we come across this inevitable sort of conflict of like, okay, meditation is great, spiritual pursuits are great, but I have to eat, right? We don't have a system that allows us to just pursue that and be in that, that, impractical spiritual pursuit for the rest of our lives for most of us. Right. And, and so I think it, it just brings us back to, to what you're saying earlier of, of there's, there's a real value of whole brain living and being able to use both. Right. And so, so my, my question for you is, is how do you do that? Because you're in, I mean, you're, you're at Harvard, right? Is that, is that not correct? anymore? No. no, no. Okay. Well, you're nope. in a university setting. I had a stroke. I fell off that ladder. <laughs> okay. 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 But you're, you're in a university setting, you're writing books, you're yeah. giving viral Ted talks, you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're functioning in the world, you're making money. Yeah. Um, but you also have a, a very clear and strong connection with presence, with joy, with just an exuberant way, way of being that I think many people are probably listening to and being like, wow, how do I get some of that? You know, yeah. that's, I know that's, that's the way I experience it. Right. And, yeah. and so 
on, I mean, I, and we'll get into to the book, the the brain method and, and sort of the, the recommendations you give, but I think on, on a more macro scale, like how do you organize your life? What do you do in order to ensure that you have this, this balance and that you're, you're staying functional, you're staying, you know, you can, you can form full sentences, you can write books, you can do all of that, but you can also just snap into it and be amazed by the fact that you have eyes, you know? So, right. so how, how do you, how do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you find that balance in your day to day? Uh, I'm very careful with, with how I schedule my life. Um, first of all, um, uh, I made a commitment to myself, uh, after the stroke and during the process of recovery that I, I was grateful for what I had gained. And I made an agreement with myself that I would recover as much as I needed to recover in order to become a functional human being. And what that meant was then I would regain language. Well, language changes everything. You know, when you don't have language and all you have is present moment and you're not looking at things and trying to define things and you just come to the present moment, then then there's just this complete experience of bliss. I mean, it's beautiful there. With language and with the left brain comes judgment. And language is judgment. What is the difference? Uh, uh, you know, line up a whole bunch of colors between red and pink and tell me, okay, I'm going to go to the lipstick aisle. Sorry. But go to lipstick aisle and look at that lipstick and say, which, which one, where is the line between red and pink? right? Mm -hmm. When you got 20 colors there, well, you're probably going to pick a different place than I am. Mm -hmm. So that's how your brain is differentiating between a pink and a red. Well, pink and red are language. So if you say to me pink, then in your mind, you may have one perception of pink and I'm going to call that red. To me, that's still a red. So we're communicating, but we're missing in the communication. But the point here is that we're making a judgment call on where's pink and where's red begin and end. And so if you take that with every word that we use or every, every way that we communicate with one another, we are communicating with one another, but I really have no idea whatsoever what it feels like or is like to be Eric, mm -hmm. right? I only know what is it like to be Jill. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to, for me, it was like, I, not, I will learn the tools, and I will gain the tools, but I, I am so clear that those are tools and those are circuits in my brain. And if I don't recover the numbers circuitry, then I simply don't have mathematics anymore. If I don't regain language, then I don't have language anymore. If I don't have the definition of self and where I begin and end, then I simply don't have that skill anymore. Am I less of a human because I'm not using that circuitry? So if you look at your brain as circuitry and you say to yourself, what circuits am I overrunning? And in our society, we are skewed to the value structure of the left hemisphere. And because it's not just a group of cells, these are characters. These are character profiles inside of myself. When I'm trying to control the world, when I'm kind of trying to control my environment or my schedule or other people, or I'm trying to make judgments and fit other things and other people inside of my box, then, then that's a character inside of me. How does that feel inside of me? And is that a part of me that I want to spend a lot of time embodying? Do I need to be right all the time? That's a character 
character inside of me. So I simply don't need to be right all the time. I need to be able to explore. I want to explore possibilities. So I'm going to other people who, who, who have a attraction toward or a value for who I am in my experience will come toward me and others will be repelled by me. I always say people, they love me or they run from me. I mean, it's simple, right? And I'm okay with that. I don't feel the need to be right or to latch on to anyone or get anyone's approval. I am mm-hmm. perfect and whole and beautiful just the way that I am. I'm good with that. You can't say that in our society overall and have people say, oh, you're being arrogant. You're being this, you're being selfish. And it's like, no, I am a bright light in the universe and I'm going to be a bright light in the universe and I'm going to attract other bright lights in the universe. And that's how I choose to live my life. So I don't pursue interviews. I don't pursue gigs. I don't pursue speaking engagements. I don't pursue I am pursuing a few things like a research project, blah, blah, blah. So I am highly functional. I'm doing those. But the reason why I'm doing those things is because other people have come to me with their skill sets and said, Jill, we want to show whole brain living as an evidence-based program. I say, how can I support you? Someone says, Jill, I want to bring whole brain living into yoga in the prison system. I say, how do I support you? People come to me and say, I do yoga with uh, 12-step programming. I want to bring whole brain living into that. I say, how do I support you? So that's how I live my life. How do I support you? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. And and that way, then it's not like, okay, Jill's got these goals. You know, it's like, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? Uh, Your your investor says, okay, what's your goal? And I'm saying, "Mm, uh, you know, I, I just, I just, uh, just let's let's be smart. Let's just be smart in the present moment and come from a place of open possibility and see what comes. And to a to a left brain, that is an absolutely terrifying way of living one's life. Exactly. Yeah. But you have to ask yourself. And um, to me, you have to ask yourself, the, the value of the left hemisphere is how much do I get? How much do I have? It wants more, it wants more, it wants more. The left brain uh, personalities are always wanting more. They're, they want more money. They want a bigger house. They want more money than you have. Uh, they want to be higher on that ladder. They, you know, it's always more and more and more and comparing it to everybody else. And it's like, at what point is enough enough? And to me, I made the decision that being alive and being a bright light in the world was enough. And then it has proven to be enough. Wouldn't it be a different world if that's how we lived our lives? Where we're actually thriving together. We're not, oh, I have to make you lower because I have to be higher. Or you have to have less because I want more. It's like mm, totally different value structures between the two hemispheres. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I don't don't know if you know this about me. I I work with uh, psychedelic medicine with. uh, I do know that about you. Okay, yeah. So, I mean. I, I use slightly different language, but I dedicate a lot of time and energy to getting to that place myself and helping other people to to find their way there. You know, I think that's that's something that's very it's close to my heart. You know, and 
that's that's what drew me to your work initially because it's it seems like we're going to a very similar place but from from sort of different directions you know and and what i find again and again within myself and with the people who who i work with is there's a lot of inertia you know parts 1 and 2 are very well developed and they're they're very valued in our society that's the way cities get built and you know empires get run and we have multiple generations of of pushing really hard with one and two all day every day and when we start accessing three and four you know the presence the passion the just joy bliss boundlessness a lot of fear comes up and and there's a lot of social forces telling us that's that's very reasonable you should be afraid you know that's that's crazy talk. Don't don't get into that. You know, get down to to business. You know, be be practical, and and so, I mean, in your book, you you give us a method because not all of us can can have a stroke tomorrow. You know, we need to we need to find another way to to get there, and so you 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 give us the brain method, right? Which is B R A I N: breathe, recognize, appreciate, inquire, and navigate. Yeah. So it's yeah. this, this sort of five-step process where at, at any time when you feel like my one's really on fire right now, or my two is just, you know, all over the place, how right. do I get back to center? How do I, how do I navigate this situation consciously? Right. right? And I don't, uh, I think if you don't mind, or maybe just reference people to the book to, to go through each step, because we'd be another 45 minutes going through, through each step. But I do really want to focus on the breathing because I, I work a lot with the breath. I think it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I think even if, if people don't take anything else away from this, using the breath to, that I think would be hard. I think it, it yes, but, but just, just to say, <laughs> I like, understand. like, so whatever you take away from this, I think that using the breath as a way to sort of reset whatever neural circuits are active and give you an opportunity to do something differently, I think is, is really powerful. Right. And if, if, if you don't mind, can I just read like a quote from, from the book? So, so within the brain method, the breath, you say, I hook into my character force consciousness that exists in the internal flow. When I shift my mind into the present moment, focus on my breath and feel my heart expand to connect with the breeze that both brushes my face and simultaneously rustles the leaves on the trees. When this happens, I shift out of my left brain's perceived boundaries and meld into the energy. I become the movement of the flow and shift into being that elusive thing. I am not only the leaf, but I am the energy that moves the leaf. I am not just the bird that soars. I am the energy that lifts the wing so the bird can pivot even higher. I am not just the kiss of the breeze upon my face, but I'm the warmth within it. I am not just the purr of the kitten, but I'm the energy of love that radiates in that vibration. And very and, nice. Yes, I thought so too. <laughs> That's <laughs> very so nice. It's very true. Yeah. That's where I go. You know, people say, how do you get there, Jill? And, you know, I, I have woods in my backyard and I just, I look at the wood, I look out there and it's winter, of course. And so if there's, any movement, I, I don't focus my eye on anything. I simply, I simply look and, and then if there's any movement, then it, it catches a part of my retina and I become that movement. I don't become a leaf. I don't become a tree. I don't focus on anything. I simply become the energy of the movement. 
and when and and it's just this incredible expansiveness that happens automatically mm-hmm. and it's lovely i mean there's no judgment there's no right wrong good bad there's simply presence at an elemental level yeah yeah, yeah. i did this with a, a group in a, a an auditorium once and it was this magnificent there were like three tiers of, of uh audience <clears throat> and they said you know can you can you take us there and i thought why not right and so in the room there were these beams of light shooting onto you know me and this fellow who were was interviewing me and i said look into the beam of light and look at the dust particles and everybody, and I just calmed everybody and we just became, just become the dust particles as they move. Because, you know, in that kind of lighting in an indoor space, there was all these obvious dust particles and it was magnificent. The energetic of the connection of all these people just becoming the dust particles. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And that's how easy it can be if you set yourself up to calm that left brain enough to let yourself come in. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you about psychedelics. Great. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, um, I've been looking forward to this conversation and, um, you know, as I say in the book, I'm not an expert on Mm -hmm. psychedelics, but Mm -hmm. since I wrote that book, uh, I become much more of an expert than I was before. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I've, I've watched everything I can find on the internet researchers talking about, uh, what they're doing, the value of it, how they're doing it. Um, uh, the companies that are in it, I've explored the, um, uh, those companies from both a stock perspective, uh, an investment possibility into the characters who run these organizations, what the arguments are is ongoing. Um, I've dived into, uh, you know, just kind of what's being shown to the general public for uh, binging. Um, you know, I've just, I've just hit it from every angle I mm-hmm. could. Uh, I've talked to experts who, who are doing this. Um, and I, you know, I, I recognize, so from a four character perspective, this is what I believe, uh, mm-hmm. psilocybin. I'm mm-hmm. going to talk about psilocybin because mm-hmm. I've had literally hundreds, if not thousands of people write to me over the, the, you know, decade and say, you know, I had a psilocybin trip and it was exactly what you described in your Ted talk. Yeah. And I thought, yes. well, yeah, other than mine lasted eight years, I'm guessing it was very similar. So, <laughs> You know, and it's true, you know, it's circuitry, right? And so what actually is going on? And I do believe that that in my language, uh, psilocybin in particular uh, shuts down uh, what's going on in the right hemisphere, helps boot you out of what's going on there and kind of throws you over into the right hemisphere present moment experience with a very interesting kind of hallucinogenic colorful, a different experience than what I had, um, but comparable because of the shutting down of the left hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so that's, would you agree with that? Having, having experienced and read? Yeah. So, so to, I guess I want to talk about it in two different ways. First, we can talk about it experientially and then maybe neurologically. So exper- yep. experientially, uh, I would say there are stages to the experience that are fairly predictable typically it's going to start as a sensory experience uh 
Um, and that if you take a lower dose, it's going to remain a sensory experience. Your senses are going to become much more acute. Uh, colors are going to be more vibrant. You're going to be able to hear better. Uh, I think of it as sort of entering into hunter mode. And I think, you know, there's evolutionary evidence that that's exactly how people used it. It's at low doses, uh, all kinds of substances, everything from, from ayahuasca to, to Amanita muscaria to psilocybin. Uh, can be used to make you a much more effective hunter. You're just much more perceptive. Then as time goes on or with a higher dose, you move into what I consider to be more like the scientist perspective where not only are you more perceptive, you're more observant. You've got your your mind is is more active than normal. You start making intellectual connections that you probably wouldn't have made otherwise or would have taken a lot longer to make. Um, and then at, at a higher dose or later on in the experience, often move into what I consider to be like the philosopher's phase of sort of, well, let's say before the philosopher, let's say we get into the psychologist's phase. We get into the phase of making connections between seemingly disparate aspects of my life experiences maybe that I didn't remember before I suddenly remember and I see its importance I see its significance uh, I see how it connects to other other aspects of my life and then at a higher dose or as the experience goes on we'd move in into more of the philosopher phase and and often taking that out to sort of more universal types of lessons of which which generally can be described in in very simple terms of you know something about love, about kindness, about humanity. Um, and the, I think the, the difference between a psychedelic experience and uh, say, I don't know, the experience of reading a profound book is that you feel the truth of the sentence, right? It's not just, oh, this is true. And when you just, when you say the sentence, it's, it seems very banal, but it's a very different thing to feel its truth in your body. Like you feel it in your bones. Like I am love. Right. And if someone says that to you on the street, it doesn't really mean anything, but when you feel that and you know, in your deepest core, that's true. That's a, that's a very powerful experience. Right. And so that moves into the, the sort of mystical experience or the, the mystic phase, which I think is, is the most comparable to, to what you're talking about in, in terms of, of being in, in character for where there is, a dissolution of the self, a connect, a sense of connection with all that is. The life force that moves in me is the same as the life force that moves in you. Um, you know, we are we are spiritual being, beings having a human experience rather than humans having a spiritual experience, and that is what I think in in many traditions. Well, in, in English, we just have the word enlightenment, which is a little bit crude, but but it's sartori. You know, it's the the realization of what what in spiritual traditions is considered a higher truth. You know, that, that when you really get down to it, that is a more accurate way of describing who I am and what is my place in the world, right? And then, and then a more sort of um, enduring form of enlightenment would be being able to access that, that way of understanding, that way of being on a more regular basis. So it becomes an integrated part of yourself. It's not just a one-off experience. It's something that you, you can connect with even when you're tempted to get angry or upset, even when you're tempted to get greedy, you can sort of tap back into that energy and say, wait a minute, it's, it's not that important, right? This is, 
you know, illusion, Maya, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And, and so I would say on, on an experiential level, yes, it does map on very, very closely to, to the experience that you describe. The part that's the two things that really interest me about that is from your model, it, uh, like we said before, it seems to sort of remove that hierarchical structure and say, well, yes, the sense of connection is and openness is, is real and it's there, but it's not necessarily any more true than character one's way of perceiving the world. They are different, perhaps equally valid ways of perceiving the world, and, and they will have different consequences if you live more connected to your character four or your character one. But to me, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the spiritual assumption that the sense of connection is somehow in an absolute sense truer or more valid. I can say in a pragmatic sense, it's much more enjoyable. I can say it uh, it adds value to my life to be in close connection with character four. But I, from my understanding of your work, it, it, it makes me think, well, this, this sort of hierarchical structure saying that, that four is absolutely better than one, maybe not, maybe not. And maybe you could you could make an equal argument that that one is is a more accurate and valid way of seeing the world. It's it's just about looking at the pragmatic consequences of living more in one way or living more in another way. Right? Does that does that make I sense? I think the proof is in the puppy. You hmm. know, I always say the proof is in the puppy. You got a dog who shows up with you know bad lab results, but the dog looks fine. I think the proof is in the puppy, and I think that as as we live in a world that is completely skewed to the left brain values of me and mine and I am and I want more, this is the world. Well, there's a whole lot of people who think that that's a better way of living and that's the world we're currently living. So I, I think I think it's it's obvious. I think it's to me, the proof is in the puppy. It's obvious we're living in a very unhealthy world. And, and how do we bring ourselves back more toward balance. And again, I'm, oh. I, I was the first to say character four is a completely non-functional way to be, yeah. <clears throat> but stemming from that consciousness. Um, and, and I'm a, I'm an anatomist. I'm a biologist. I, I'm a cellular. Uh, uh, I, I value the consciousness of the cell. I think that there is a consciousness that exists and that we tap into, we are a byproduct of that consciousness. And that consciousness for me is the consciousness that exists in every cell. And whether I'm a single cell or I'm 50 trillion cells strong, I'm, I, there is a consciousness within me and an energy vibration about the difference between health and unwellness. And when people get caught up in all that unwellness of the left brain stress circuitry, it brings unwellness into, uh, you know, the culture of the body cells, which is essentially the dirt that my brain is planted in. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of reasons for thinking and believing what I believe. Um, I found your comment earlier about, you know, it's interesting that you look at this as a model and I don't look at it as a model. I look at it as biology. All you have to do is study evolution and biology of cell development. And uh, this is a pattern response. I mean, this is how the nervous system across time has built and differentiated and established itself. So I don't even see it as a model. People say, Jill, do you, is it a model? And it's like, to me, it's not a model. To me, it's biology. And it's like, 
you know, we can separate neurology and neuroscience from psychology, but it's like, what sense does that make? To me, that makes no sense. And then you can have all these psychological models and this isn't a psychological model at all. This is functional cells. You can take a thousand people, wipe out a certain part of their brain and we do, it's called stroke and you're going to have aphasia, no language. Well, why is that? That's because those cells don't function anymore. Well, if I don't have language, am I going to be interacting with the external world in the same way that I would otherwise? No, I absolutely wouldn't. I wouldn't have the same values and I wouldn't be able to compete. I wouldn't be able to perform. But what again, not what did I lose? but what do I gain? And if I wipe out my, my left hemisphere, which is me functional in the world, do I have less value? Yes. To the left brain, I absolutely do have less value. Uh, essentially I become vegetative. So wipe out my, my emotional tissue and, and now I'm completely non-functional and then I'm nothing but vegetative and who's going to keep me alive mm, and uh, for how long? Well, till the money or the insurance runs out, right? Cause then I have no value to the performance in the external world. But am I unconscious? No, I still have a level of consciousness. I simply don't have a consciousness that you can value even all those left extreme left brainers are trying to achieve what I have now gained in a permanent state of vegetation. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's biology to me, it's all biology. It's all cells. Mm -hmm. It's anatomy. It's biology. It's the natural evolution of humanity. And I truly believe that the next step for humanity is working the kinks out between what are we thinking? What are we feeling in both hemispheres? What are we thinking and thinking in both hemispheres? And what are we emoting in both hemispheres? How do we bring ourselves into a whole brain living experience? Um, But I want to go back to psychedelics. I want to, I want to express my concerns. Can I do that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I'll do it quickly, but I do have concerns. Okay. These are my concerns. First of all, um, as I look at the world, first of all, I certainly recognize the value that psychedelics can have in helping people uh, relate to, to their past trauma in a way that allows them to recognize, oh my gosh, my past is my past. It's not even here. It's been 40 years ago. Uh, I don't have to continue to feel that, to run that circuit, to get hooked up in that pain. I don't have to rerun all my trauma, my PTSD, my trauma from my childhood, all of that. I recognize Mm -hmm. the power of these medications, I'm going to call them medications, that allow us to shift out of certain circuitry in our brain into other circuitry in our brain so we can offer ourselves a different perspective over our experiences. And I love the way I've never heard anybody break this down into these like six different levels of activity in a psychedelic experience. Thank you. That was beautifully done. Um, And because I value, I recognize the value under the correct circumstances. I'm going to begin there. However, this is, these are my concerns. Number one, I want it to be transparent. I want to know I want it to be honest. I want it to be true. I want it to be transparent. I don't want the BS. Here's the BS. One, it's not a good recreational drug. I'm 62 years old. I was right behind the hippies. I know at least 50 people who use this recreationally. 
Don't tell me it's not a good recreational drug. Simple, period, crap. Don't tell me that. How many people are using psychedelics recreationally? So fine, reality is a lot of people are using it recreationally. Let's just own that, okay? I think truth, that's the beginning. Number two, here's my biggest concern as a neuroanatomist. What's the value? Well, the value is it blasts out of the left brain into the right brain. We have this experience. We get to have a new perception. But with that, in order to have that experience, we are experiencing uh, uh, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. That is the trauma response from the brain. So do not tell me that this is not traumatic to the brain, okay? Don't tell me that. Mm -hmm. That is the natural traumatic response, okay? If you do that once or twice or three times in order to work through a problem, I can relate to that. I can be sympathetic to that. And I'm not going to complain about what you're doing to your brain. But if you are doing it recreationally, you are creating trauma in your brain. Number three, it's not sustainable, If people are going back over and over and over again, it's not a sustainable solution as a therapeutic. How is that any different than putting me on Prozac for the next 50 years? Okay. So you're, yeah, uh, see, I've prepared for you, dear one. I've really looked forward to this conversation. I've got one more for you, and then I'm going to let you talk to me. Great. Okay. Um, Um, here's my other really big one. I have a brother diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. My brother didn't achieve my, there's no mental illness history like this in our, in our trees. Mm -hmm. We've been looking and I don't think my brother has a typical schizophrenia, uh, somewhere along the line. I think my brother's more like a temporal lobe epilepsy because he responds more to anticonvulsant than, uh, antipsychotic medications. Uh, which means more of his problem is in his temporal lobe as opposed to uh, other regions in his brain. Uh, You know, back in the day, and they still say, you know, here's, let's talk cells. If you take something that tells your brain to hallucinate, you're telling your brain to hallucinate. Okay. Hallucination is circuitry inside of your brain. If you say to your brain, I want you to hallucinate, turn on the hallucination circuitry. Well, that's great. In a normal case, Uh, the drug goes in, it turns on the hallucination, you hallucinate, and then it runs out and you stop hallucinating. But there's a whole lot of hallucinogenic activity going on in sweet young people where apparently a third of the cases are being blamed on hallucinogenic drugs. Why? Simply because if they had a predisposition toward hallucination, then it turns the circuitry on and the circuitry doesn't get turned off. That's a lifetime disaster. Okay. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Great. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, if, if, how much time do you have? I got a little more time. Okay. Um, we'll try and go through this, uh, thoroughly, but I also, there's, there's something that I really, really, really have to ask you. So, so, uh, I want to make t- sure that we get to that as well. Okay. okay. So starting just with the, the term medication, um, yeah. I would say, Personally, I do not consider it a medication because it has an experiential component to it, right? Part of the therapeutics 
is your lived experience. It's not, you can describe it in chemical terms, neurological terms, but it has a transformational experience or a transformational effect on your experience of yourself in the world. And it seems clear from the research I've seen that is that subjective experience that is therapeutic, right? So it's, it's a, it's a sort of another dimension of the therapeutic experience. It's working yes, on a cellular level, but also on a psychological experiential level. So um, I, I guess my, I, I don't understand to me, to me, I thought it was uh, giving grace to the molecule to call it medication. So apparently <laughs> that's opposite from how you're feeling about it. So just help me understand what, what is, you know, to me, Okay. So, so maybe you're saying it's more like, um, you know, uh, drinking milk, uh, or eating ice cream. Whenever I go to a board committee meeting, I go and I, I eat ice cream. Why do I eat ice cream? One, I want the calcium to calm my muscles down. And I want the tryptophan so that I can just sit there and listen to all this stuff when I really would rather be out, you know, being a C4 somewhere. So to me, that's kind of in a way I self-medicate myself, mm -hmm. but it's through a natural molecule. So is your right. concern, so, is, is what's important to you? This is a natural molecule. So you don't want to call it uh, no, a, it's, a it's medication. A, it's in, in the example of the milk, when the calcium and the tryptophan are, are used up, the effect goes away with psychedelics. When the psychedelic substance is used up, the effect does not go away. In most cases, there's an enduring effect that can be antidepressive. It can be, you know, therapeutic in, in, in numerous different ways that to date can't be, it's, it's not just like, well, the medication is in your system. It has an effect, right? So you take painkillers. Do you think that's hours, true for everyone? It's, no. And that gets into the recreational thing, right? right. So the in typical um, parlance would be called set and setting, right? It's about the, the context. The context is incredibly important. Yes, psychedelics can be a lot of fun recreationally. They can also be very destructive. Uh, it's kind of a crapshoot. In order to have, thank you for that. <laughs> I was honest. <laughs> yeah, and that's. I mean, that's that's. Yeah, that's just that's the way it is. No, yeah, no it is. Much. And but in order to be a therapeutic experience, it's worth spending a lot of time and energy figuring out what exactly do I want out of this? What am I doing this for? What are my goals right. here? Right. And then afterward what am I going to do to apply these lessons to my everyday yeah. life? Right. And yeah. so, so that to me is what makes it therapeutic is when you use it well, when you have a clear, a clear intention and you're working on it as part of a therapeutic process. And for all of these, these studies that are being done with maps and where you see these, these amazing results, uh, you know, with, with people who are you know terminally ill with cancer and they suddenly have this like, revolutionary experience where they're suddenly at peace with themselves, with their family. It's because it's because it's part of a therapeutic process it can be 10 weeks or 20 weeks or whatever. So I think it's, it's important to say that it's not magic. It's not just you take a pill and it has an automatic effect. The way, right. the way you take it, the way you engage with it, if not determines at least heavily influences the effect that it will have. I agree a thousand percent. And so, Can I make one other point? Yes. While we're in here? Yeah. Um, so in looking at the research and really looking at the research and the process that they go through, you know, they decide, uh, they filter out 
or so of the people who want to participate. That tells us something. If the experts who are actually using it therapeutically are weeding out and filtering out 98% of the people who want to participate in that study, there's got to be a reason why. And so, you know, what that says to me is that for some reason, those people, uh, they're concerned about the response or their physiological response, not just their, their, their emotional, their cognitive or their physiological ability to actually endure taking that drug during this window of treatment. Yeah, I don't, I don't have firsthand knowledge of their, their process. I mean, it could just be an effect that millions of people want to do it and they only have 200 slots, you know, so by default, you have to reject a bunch. I don't know exactly. No, no, it's based on, and they're the first to say, not everybody should take this. Hmm. They are by, yeah, you know, uh, it does have an impact on heart rate. It does have an impact on physiology. It mm-hmm. does have a, uh, you know, you're not going to give somebody bipolar uh, or somebody who hallucinates these meds. I mean, you, you, you need to filter out a whole lot of people. And my concern is that once the FDA approves this and there are people waving the bandwagon flag saying, hey, you know, everybody should try psilocybin drip. And it's like, this really concerns me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if it does happen in that way, there will be a big backlash and yeah. people will use it in ways that are not helpful and they will blame the medication or the medicine or whatever you want to call it, rather than having an understanding of, of the process. Right. And that's, yeah. that's, to me, that's why it's important to differentiate it from medication because, you know, in, in theory, at least you take Prozac at morning, at night, in a crowd by yourself has the same effect. May or may not work, but you know, that's a different story. Same thing with aspirin, whatever. Psychedelics are different. It, it's, it's not an automatic effect. It, it is, I don't know, maybe a tool. It's a possibility to have a very powerful, even transformative experience, but it's not a guarantee. And in, in order to, to make the most of it, there needs to be a lot of attention paid to the entire process. That, you know, that I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I I do believe it has its place in our society. I do have concerns about the place that it's going to have in our society. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I see a lot of people who are very gung ho about it and just, you know, psychedelics all the way, it's going to change the world. And it's like, if it's done carelessly, no, it's not going to. It's just it's yeah, going to be a boom for a few years. And then there's going to be, right. you know, cases of, of disasters. And it's going to be like, oh my God, what have we done? And make it illegal again. Right. So, so no, I definitely, I definitely share those concerns. And on personal level, when, when I work with people, it's, I mean, a, a minimum six-week commitment, um, which is just, I mean, I would love it to be longer, but on practical terms, it's hard to get people to commit longer than that, you know, and, and at least three weeks. And how often a week is that during that six weeks? So that what I do typically is just uh, three weeks leading up to to the event of just like via Zoom. It's a, a mixture of, of sort of therapy, meditation, uh, breath work, really personalized to to the person, right? And it, it's basically it's about clarifying what are your intentions, why are you doing this, and why do you think psychedelics are going to help you in this? Like, why, why aren't you doing that already? Right. If you say, well, you know, I want to process my childhood trauma. I want to just be happy, be free. It's like, okay, well, what, what's holding you back from that now? And really being, being clear about that. And I, the way I work is I try to work in 
really a whole brain way. And this is, this is the part I really, really want to get to is, is considering the whole brain as, you know, the body and the cellular consciousness as part of the brain. Right. And so working on a physiological level, I mean, I work with, uh, breath work, meditation, ice baths, uh, sweat lodges, uh, fasting, you know, all, all kinds of different things to try and work on a, on a physiological level, an emotional level, and in an intellectual level to help people prepare for this experience so that it's not a shock to the system. It's like, if you've already tried a little bit of, of sort of shutting down that circuitry with breath work, for example, then it's not such a big shock when you do it with psychedelics. And it's, it's comparable, I think, to, to like a dream, lucid dreaming, right? If, Mm -hmm. if you dream that there's a monster and you just get totally overwhelmed with fear and you start running away, like that monster is going to chase you. Right. But if you dream there's a monster and you're like, Hey monster, like, what are you doing in my brain? Like, do you, mm-hmm. do you have something you want to tell me? Then that monster will transform into a flower and right. send you a message, you know? And so it's getting people sort of comfortable in that terrain so that they can navigate it as, yeah. as efficiently as possible. Right. And so yeah. for me, it's, it's really important that to sort of move away from the sort of mystical spiritual type of uh, formulations of what psychedelics are because it places the power outside of ourselves and it it places the truth outside of ourselves. And for me, it's about connecting with yourself, with your own circuitry, with what's going on in your brain. Right. And the the one thing that I think is absolutely crucial about the spiritual formulation is that it makes you humble. Right. And I think humility is crucial, right? So if you formulate, okay, we're connecting to a higher dimension to this, you know, Amazonian goddess or whatever, like the, the thing that I think is most useful about that is it, it makes you humble. And so if we can enter into the experience with humility and with curiosity about just really genuinely wanting to learn what's going on inside of me, then I don't want to say guaranteed, but it's extremely likely you're going to have a very powerful and therapeutic experience, right? Because it's- And I can can be supportive of that. I mean, I think that that is the right way to do this. Um, and that so far is not the way that I see it being presented to, uh, the global, uh, platform of, um, you know, oh my God, psilocybin is going to be legal soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, because it's hard yeah. to scale that. It's hard to scale that. You yeah. know, I mean, I work with a maximum yeah. of, of five people at once yeah. and that, that's just the way to my mind, that's yeah. the way it needs to be done. And you, you can't you know, pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in that. They want, they want to isolate what's the one or two active components, make it in a lab as cheaply as possible. So it is for as much money as possible and give it to the entire world and, you know, make a profit. That's, that's the way our system works. Right. So there is definitely a risk that if this gets exported into that model, it's going to have a lot of the same shortcomings that our current medications have, which is, they're overprescribed. They're used irresponsibly. They have all kinds of unintended side effects, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, yeah. Which think- those things are already happening. I mean, let's, let's be real. Yeah. At least in America, if I wanted to go get mushrooms, I could get them yeah. in 10 minutes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah. so let's, uh, you're, you're the, the third point of like, what's the value of this, right? I think it, it touches on that. The value isn't inherent, right? It can just be, you know, basically equivalent to getting drunk. The value is when you have a need 
when there's something that you haven't been able to process on your own, something you haven't been able to connect with or understand on your own, the same way you would go to a therapist or to, you know, any, whatever healing modality you want to, you're, you're looking for some external aid. Then if it's approached with calm, with care, with intelligence, it can be incredibly valuable in helping you to take a step, right? Yeah. It's not, oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Okay. I, I don't, I, I, I don't argue that at all okay. uh, there. Okay. And that's why I tried to start out and say, I recognize the value. Yeah. That's yeah. not my concern. Yeah. My concern is the abuse. Right. Okay. okay. And the lack of transparency in being open about the abuse that's already going on, much less. That's that's another big problem. And that, when I mean, it becomes more more available. Yeah. yeah, you see that. I mean, you see it with psychedelics. You see it with in in any kind of movement, where I mean, the day you start a school of whole brain living, you're going to see that as well, where people are trying to cover up the shortcomings and just pretend like it works for everyone all the time, and it's it's wonderful. You see that everywhere, all over the world. That's just. I don't know, an innate human tendency, right? And it's definitely present in psychedelics where there's this impulse when, when there's an abuse, when there's misconduct, whatever, people just say, no, 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 don't talk about it. We're, we're, you know, we're on a crusade, we're on a mission to make it legal. Like, don't, don't let the cat out of the bag, basically. And that to but me- this is a kind of fundamental cat out of the bag. I mean, to say it is not a good recreational tool is not true. It's simply yeah. not true. So, so don't say that. You know, to me, that's that to me, that's that's what it is. Just mm. just don't deny reality. Mm. Mm. But we are in the world of fake news. So I don't know. Maybe it's OK, but yeah. it's not OK with me. No, no. Well, I, I think <laughs> I think the, the path forward is is has to be transparency. It has to be. It, it has to be. It has to in be order a, for anything to truly survive and yeah. be respected on all levels. I think yeah. it does. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. hundred percent. Yeah. Now, and and, and that's not to say that, of course, there aren't these circumstances. I think the way that you're doing it is a perfect way of doing it if you're going to do it. Um, But what I would do on top and underneath that is I would wrap it. I would wrap it around whole brain living Hmm. because whole brain living is sustainable. And if I actually am using whole brain living, knowing that the consciousness of my cells is right there in that character four of me, I can get to know that through this experience, I can use that observer perspective of observing the pain or whatever the problem is that I want to root out, then I can find my own way to embody my character four. So I don't have to come back to you. I'm sorry, you're a lovely man. But would it be nice if people didn't have to come back? to you. To me, I want it to be sustainable. I want it to be sustainable. And I truly believe that if it is used as a tool to help people access their character for, then whole brain living can be a model, if that's what you're going to call it. To me, it's a consciousness. It is an awareness of a part of myself that I can then embody at any time. And I used my experience with you in order to to recognize and work, work toward, work through, work around and free myself from the need to have to go back again. I want what you do to be sustainable. Yes. Uh, three, three things. Okay. Um, I consider psychedelics to be a form of hormesis and I, I, of what? I hormesis. So that the basic principle, it's a biological principle that when the body and in this case, the brain is subjected to acute forms of stress under controlled conditions. 
it responds basically by becoming stronger. And right, depending on the form of stress, the response will be different, but it can be with heat, with cold, with hypoxia, with hypercapnia, with uh, fasting, with uh, extreme exercise, with, you know, basically my toolkit is a hormetic toolkit. And I consider psychedelics to be sort of the pinnacle of that because it combines the physiological with the neurological, thereby including the psychological, right? So I I consider it to be existential hormesis. So it is, it is traumatic to the brain, as you said, but in a very specific and controlled manner and done with a specific purpose, right? And so in, in hormetic training, I mean, we can use uh, physical training as an example. I'm, I'm a runner. I do, uh, you know, medium to long distance barefoot running when you're training. Yes. You do need to have the regular and often, you know, short runs every day, just staying active. But once a week, you also need to go out for a long run and really push yourself and, and set a new standard for yourself and then maintain. And then again, maybe a week later, maybe two weeks later, push again a little bit further and maintain, maintain, maintain. So I don't, I, and I think the brain works in similar ways where I, I definitely do not want people doing psychedelics once a week. I think that's, you know, I don't want to say never, but in most cases that's crazy. I know of cases of people who've done it every day for six months. That is insane. Abusive. I, I personally, somewhere between once and twice a year, I find that I'm in a place where I could get a lot of value out of it. So I, I don't see it as black and white, like only do it once or do it all the time. My question to you is, because you found this tool now, mm-hmm. you use the tool. But what if you have found a different tool? What if you knew? What if you really knew? Mm-hmm. I mean, as you're talking about these different layers of, of this experience, I'm thinking that if you, a master of this stuff in understanding it and working with others, if you can achieve, achieve your mystical phase, if you can achieve really having universal types of lessons, why do you need the molecule? I don't need a molecule. I can look out there and become the wind. You can do that too. Mm-hmm. So how much of the argument that you're going to make is actually because you want to versus you need to? I, I'm not sure if I could differentiate really. What would you do different. if you didn't have access to it? What if all the bombs blew and you ended up being one of the, you know, a thousand people left on the planet and you didn't mm-hmm. have, you, you had no access to the molecule. Yeah. You would yeah. continue to grow because it's who you are. Mm-hmm. You have achieved a certain level of enlightenment. At what point do you just really rely on the enlightenment instead of going back to the molecule? Yeah. To me, to me, I don't, I don't have a firm answer. It's, it's a, it's a question that I'm in the process of answering by living, right? So, so I do, I can say anthropologically speaking, all known cultures have had some form of hallucinogenic experience as generally as a part of their initiation rituals, right? To become a full human, you need to have this experience. You had yours through a stroke, right? At what point Um, do you become a whole human being? Well, just anthropologically speaking, there's generally, there's a, there's a ritual where it could be with psychedelics. It could be uh, dancing for four days straight without eating, without drinking, without sleeping. But at what point do you achieve full human being so you don't have to go back and have ritual after ritual after ritual? This is my concern. Yeah, when, to me, when, this becomes a dependency. Mm-hmm. That is exactly my concern. So 
I recognize the value past mm-hmm. trauma, but if you've been doing this for years and you're, you're still digging and you're still rooting, it's like, you know, I mean, that's like me deciding I want to smoke a joint because I'd like to be high again. It's like, I will never do that to my brain. I will never do that to my brain because I know of the trauma. And if we're always doing a comparison of what is the chosen trauma, it's one thing to do a trauma to the brain in order to achieve a certain level of awareness, Mm -hmm. but to choose to continue to do that, that, that is, that is, that to me is a concern from an anatomical biological perspective, because to me, if you're replacing a dependency, you're, you're, you're gaining uh, a dependency. And it's like, you don't want that. I don't want that. Yeah. I don't, I don't personally and I don't want feel the that... whole world doing that. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I, I agree. I think there, there's a definite danger of that. If this is moves forward in the way that it seems it's moving forward for me personally. And I mean, feel free to contradict me, but I don't, I don't feel that I'm dependent on it. I feel like it's a tool that I have access to the same way I can change the way that I breathe. I can do yoga, change the way I move. I can change my posture, change the way I sit. I can get into cold water. I can get into warm water. Uh, I can, you know, take my shirt off and go running on a hot day. These are, uh, I can eat certain foods or, or other foods, right? I don't see it as black or white. I see it as we're in constant engagement with our environment. And most of us live at a comfortable, you know, I, I forget Fahrenheit now it's, what would that be? 70 degrees belly's full, life is comfortable, and that's become our normal. Evolutionarily speaking, that is not normal. What is normal is to get hot, get cold, be hungry, be full, uh, run till you can't breathe anymore, then sleep for three days. That's normal. That's the way we've evolved, not only to survive, but to thrive, right? That's when our bodies are strongest. That's when our minds are strongest. That's when we are what I would consider to be our most human. And based on you know a long history of... of uh, organized religion, which is basically, to my understanding, is basically co-opting the psychedelic experience and saying, this is mine, you have to pay me in order to get it. Like that's that's what organized religion is basically. And it seems clear that at least most major religions, if not all, are born out of a psychedelic experience. I mean, there's very good evidence that the early Christians were all doing psychedelics on a regular basics, basis, early yogis as well probably all major religions come from a psychedelic experience. And so to me, I, I don't see it as like normal life versus psychedelics. It is, it is, I see it all on a continuum. Psychedelics are definitely at one end of that continuum. They're very powerful and they need to be used with care. But I mean, I subscribe to, to the theory, you know, the stone ape theory that like, there's a very good chance that we as humans are humans only because of our relationship to psychedelics. Like that is the way we developed language. That is the way we develop con- consciousness in combination with the psych- psychedelic experience. And obviously that's not a proven fact. That's a, that's a theory. It's an idea. You know, I've, you know, I've been, I've, I've, I'm, I'm very clear on all of that. Yeah. So, so one aspect that, that you, you might not and be clear on. And are beautiful. You know, and, I mean, it's a magnificent network. It's in a magnificent, I mean, I'm not debating the value. What I'm debating, what, and I'm not not really debating. It's just my opinion is, yeah. uh, I have concerns. I have yeah. deep concerns about what is going to happen uh, uh, as soon as the FDA approves uh, this. And, and part of that is because of the people who have approached me in the field of psychedelics who want mm-hmm. Joe Bolte Taylor to come and wave the flag for yeah, everybody, let's do psilocybin and have a trip like I did. And it's mm-hmm. like. 
I had trauma in my brain. I gained an awareness. I had to go through the process of rebuilding my brain. I gained a true appreciation and value for what this beautiful organ is in health. And the last thing I would want to do at this point is to uh, offer it purposely any kind of, of added trauma. But I, I, I have become, uh, you know, I worked too hard to get my circuitry back to want to harm it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so this really concerns me as mm-hmm. what's going to happen, yeah. uh, in our society and in the world. Well, and, and, and if, honestly, if you came to me saying, I want to try psychedelics, I'm going to be like, why you're what, what is your motivation? And you don't have one. So it's like, but, but the people who, who, who come to me or come to other, other practitioners are, are not there. They have, their fear is on overdrive. They're not able to connect to the tree. Therefore, I'm going you know, to go right back yeah. to the very beginning. I said, right. I, I completely recognize yeah. uh, the, the value. Um, but, but there are, are, and I really appreciate you, you being open to this piece of the conversation of course, uh, yeah. and allowing me to, to express these concerns because, yeah. um, you, you know, as far as I'm aware, people are either way for it or way against it. And mm. I'm neither. Yeah. I recognize its value and I recognize its dangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would like to be able to have the whole conversation uh, in a rational calm. Uh, and I, so I appreciate that you've definitely been open to, to my expression of my concerns. I really appreciate of course. it. Of course. Um, and, and I've, I've spent quality time um really, you know, hunting and what do, what do I think? And, and what is my response to this through mm-hmm. various, all characters inside of my brain? Yeah. Um, and um, um, yeah, so, so I just want to say, I'm thankful. Thank you, oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. for the whole conversation. I think it was mm-hmm. an excellent conversation. Um, and uh, I, I hope that we get to explore again. Um, uh, at another time with, uh, you know, where are we with these things and, and really have the, the practical conversation as, as it's getting closer. I mean, you know, I expect within two years, uh, psilocybin will be legal and, and that's, you know, uh, things will change. Yeah. Can, can I ask you one last question? Sounds like you're, you're winding up. So yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. So yeah, the, the reason I, I really, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons I, I reached out to you is because I am really interested in, in how your understanding of the brain maps on to the understanding I'm, I'm gaining of, you know, the way we as humans function. And so I assume you're familiar with Dan Siegel, his, the hand model of the brain. Have, are you, have you run across that? No. Tell me. Oh, well, it's actually a wonderful coincidence. I probably do, but tell me. Well, as you were describing the brain, you were actually unconsciously doing exactly his model, right? So you have the brain stem down at your wrist, then your thumb is the limbic system, you wrap your fingers over, you have the prefrontal cortex, right? So it's kind of three three levels of consciousness. It's basically three different iterations of the same technology, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it it seems to me that when, when we're just doing one, two, three, four, it's we're talking about thinking and feeling we're not necessarily dipping down into the physiological reaction the reptilian brain before feeling and we're not dipping down into the nervous system into the sort of body level response so i'm really interested in slime molds for example 
or plant intelligence, forms of intelligence that aren't connected to, to neurons, right? And it, it seems to me that for not just whole brain healing, but maybe whole human healing, we also need to be willing and able to, to dip down into that sort of cellular level of intelligence that gets expressed in a very visceral, you know, a gut feeling, a heart feeling, the way our body responds to certain stimuli. And so I guess to- But that's all character three and four. Is it? I mean, go back and read it. That's all character three and four. I mean, so the reason, and I do, I mean, I talk about all that. I talk about what's going on in the, the reptilian brain. Um, but, but I'm, I'm not focusing on the, the reptilian brain. What I'm focusing on is whole brain living for humanity. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between a reptile and, and you add on that new limbic tissue, it's limbic tissue. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's emotions, but it's much more than that. Mm -hmm. It is regulating what is coming up and out of that reptilian brain. So I go right. into great detail about how the right brain limbic does that versus mm -hmm. how the left brain limbic does that. Mm -hmm. But what are they doing? They're actually differentiating their higher level of processing of that reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. And then you add in thinking, and then what is that tissue for? That tissue is specifically designed to differentiate the tissue below it, yeah. which is thinking refining and differentiating emotion. Mm -hmm. So, but when you look at the body and the viscera and you look at the cranial nerves and you look at the fibers that are actually transferring between the two, that's the gut consciousness is the consciousness of the right hemisphere. Those are the fibers that are actually modulating and monitoring, even though you have vagus bringing information up to both hemispheres, mm -hmm. what's going down. And there's the, the biggest differences between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. So I'm not bringing anything different than what you're saying, mm -hmm. but what I, what my focus was is as a human, what is unique about human. And, you know, it's one thing to say reptilian limbic, limbic uh, cognition, who's talking about the differences between the right and the left hemispheres. Yeah. Where did that go? Mm -hmm. And if you read the master and his emissary with uh, Ian McGilchrist, he does this magnificent dissection of the last 70 years of research that show all these very specific differences between the way the right hemisphere is processing towards, towards more information and the left hemisphere is going for detail, even in the bird brain. I mean, the bird has to be able to see where it's going, but it also has to be able to focus on, you know, what the, what seed it's going to eat. Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead and take the reptilian emotional thinking, but you have to divide that into the two hemispheres. You know, I read these books that are currently written by some of these great leaders and they're not even talking about the differences between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And I don't know how that can be. Yeah. Not in this day and age. And then people say, oh, that's all wasn't, you know, they were wrong about that. And it's like, well, which piece? I mean, mm -hmm. there's no question in my brain. You wipe out these cells and these get wiped out. Well, this one's going to be just fine. I mean, I always ask the question then, what is the argument now for not recognizing these significant differences. You have a stroke right here, you line up 100 people with a stroke right there, they will 100% of them probably have aphasia. You know, I mean, 
I mean, it's not that big of a mystery anymore. So, so I'm coming to this purely as an anatomist, as yeah. a neuroanatomist. Yeah. And to say that there's only three, that makes no sense. There are three different levels of information processing. Yeah. Yes. But do both halves of each of those levels do it identically? No. So what I'm bringing into the conversation is a higher level of differentiation. That's all. Yeah. I'm not bringing no, exactly. any new new anatomy. I'm not even bringing new archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Not. I'm, I'm just saying. Hey, it doesn't all have to be unconscious. Yeah. And so, so I'm I'm a layperson, right? I'm not I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm coming at this from very practical terms, I see things and try and understand them within myself, within the people I work with. And what I'm really interested in exploring is like, for example, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Can we map that onto a six part brain? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so, well, you're going to have both in both. I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the emotional is the two emotion. These are both your autonomic uh, fight, flight, flee, you know, I mean, this is, this is it. And so to amygdala, am I safe? Am I safe in the present moment on the right and left? Am I safe based on 50 years ago? I saw that dog that bit, you know, my brother, whatever. So, so that is the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And when you look then at the parasympathetic, I mean, the dance between, I love the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. I mean, the, the biggest wonder I ever saw in gross anatomy was the first time I saw the spinal ganglia all lined up along the dissection of the abdomen. It is magnificent. Boom. It's so fast. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. But what is that? We have two of them. They are controlled in two different ways. They are Mm -hmm. structurally influenced completely differently. And then the parasympathetic is also bilateral, but mm-hmm. they're going to happen during different periods of time, mm-hmm. you know? So, so the anatomy is the anatomy. Um, my, what I'm, what, what I'm doing is I'm just, let's bust it out and say, what really are the differences? And, and when I read a book that talks about all of this stuff, and it does not in any way whatsoever differentiate between the way the two hemispheres process information, I have to raise my hand and say, excuse me, why not? Mm -hmm. That's all I ask. Why not? How can the, all of these decades, half a century of information be flushed down the toilet and not be looked at and taken seriously? And yeah. because you're flushing, you know, hundreds, thousands of different scientists and their entire life work. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, I mean, it's, it's a great point. It's a great point. And, and I think if, if you continue delving into psychedelics and the effect they have, I think you, or at least I inevitably come to an exploration of the sympathetic, parasympathetic, of the way the body relates to the brain and the whole, to have an effective therapeutic effect, I, I feel like you, you need to be willing and able to work on all those levels and, and work at the physiological level as well. So, so for, for example, like, uh, if uh, say someone gets into to an ice bath, right? You have uh, an external stimulus. You have a physiological response to that. Your nervous system, you know, does its thing. That sends a message to your brainstem, which then sends a message to your limbic system, which sends a message to your prefrontal cortex, right? So it's like there's this intense sensation. You say, "Oh my God, this hurts." Uh, your limbic brain says, "I don't like that," and your prefrontal cortex says, "Get the hell out of there." 
right? And so there's there's a sort of a force. Remember that of all those structures, there's mm -hmm. two of them. Yeah. Okay. There's two of everything, and they do things differently. Yeah. So so that would be then on the the left side of the brain, right? That's the the. I mean, it's the the fight or flight response gets activated. You're well, they're both. I mean, you got fight or flight on both. Mm -hmm. Everything is bilateral. You have you look at the the chain ganglia, the sympathetic nervous system. It's bilateral. Mm -hmm. You look at the vagus nerve for information and gut information up and down. It's bilateral. Yeah. Cranial nerves are bilateral. Everything is bilateral. Mm -hmm. And to to so 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 it's it's not enough to say okay, I do this and it stimulates this. And it's like, okay, I'm going to say, well, which side? And does it matter? And it does matter because they process things differently. And so what are you actually inhibiting and what are you actually exciting? Mm -hmm. And we know that what you're doing is you're actually shutting down what's going on more in that stress circuitry and stepping out of that left hemisphere processing more into the right hemisphere processing. So these cells are specialized. Mm -hmm. So, so the circuitry, so, so the way I think as a neuroanatomist, when I lost my circuitry, I actually was visualizing which cells connecting in which ways going to which side, going to which group of cells resulting in what function. Yeah. And that's how you need to think about this. You can't just say, oh, well, it's doing this and then it's doing that and it's doing this. It's like, where, which side, it doesn't matter. Yes, it matters. And you should want to differentiate like that, because if you have that level of understanding, then it's like, then you become really clear on what exactly you're doing. And to me, that's power. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because then you can say, well, here's the advantage, but what is the disadvantage? Where is the trauma that we are now actually engaging in? We're increasing neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. So we know that those cells are actually being traumatized. Okay. How do we help those if we're going to uh, engage in these behaviors in order to get this response? Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm saying to me, as long as we're looking at the whole brain, I'm good. Mm -hmm. But you have to look at the whole picture, the whole picture of that brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think this is, I don't know. Um, I'll send you some anatomy pictures. Okay, good. Yeah. And I, I would love to speak with you more in depth about yeah. the, the, the way to, to possibly integrate this understanding of what's going on in the body, what's going on in the brain, specifically yeah. in, in changing, not just the psychological reaction to stressors, but the physiological reaction to stressors as right. well. Right. And, and see, I love that conversation because in whole brain living, I'm the first to say, when you're in your character one and you're being structured and organized and you're doing that, you hold your body a certain way. There's a certain physiology going on, not just with the structure of your body, but at the chemical level of the stress circuitry communicating. I mean, stress circuitry is not just in your brain. It's a, it's, it's the adrenals. It's the entire system. So what, well, how am I holding my body? What am I treating in my body? And you're essentially saying to me, okay, well, I want to meet with you for three times, which means I want to get you into a, a place where it's not such shock to your system because my, it will be a strong, 
a shock to my absolutely character one, or if I'm in all my fear and my pain of my character two. You don't want me in that circuitry in order to have the best positive result of having this experience with you. So now you're using meditation, you're using tools that will allow me to calm down that circuitry of that left hemisphere so that I can actually be in my right hemisphere so that I'm open and curious to the possibilities of this journey now that you're going to take me on that you have prepared me for, that I have prepared me for. So I really know what I'm doing and where I'm going and I'm not afraid of it so that I can end up having a really positive experience. Well, so that's what you're doing. You're putting me, you're, you're inhibiting, you're training me to inhibit what's going on over here, opening me up to being this this part of myself mm -hmm. in relationship to my body. I make no distinction between my brain and body. Mm -hmm. I am 50 trillion cells all in communication with one another. And you're just setting, you know, you're, 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 you're uh, planting, planting healthy ground terrain for me to be able to grow in the best way possible in this experience with you. So I think we're on the same page. I just think, um, we're using different language or um, uh, our perception of, of the biology might be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yours is definitely more, much more detailed than mine. Well, um, but you know, I don't hold that against you. I, you know, but I, I would like to help you then better understand how I see it because I think, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. And, and once we get to that point, then who knows where we can go. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I'll consider that a formal invitation. That is like, a formal in invitation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I love this. I think this is excellent. Beautiful. Beautiful. Just one last thing. Um, it, for the people who are sort of in the know in this realm, they're screaming and they have been doing it for a long time. What about the default mode network? What about the default mode network? Because most people, I mean, I think based on Michael Pollan's book, that's what most people understand is happening in the psychedelic experience is that basically your default mode network goes offline. It ceases to inhibit neural connections. And all of a sudden your brain goes blam and, and, and just, you know, makes all kinds of connections that it wasn't allowed to make uh, beforehand. And in, in his description and, and the description I've been able to find, there is not a differentiation between left brain and right brain. They're not saying, Oh yeah, one half of your brain is kind of going offline, and the other half is is lighting up. They're just saying it's it's very small connection or a small number of connections to a, a huge number of connections, right? So do you do you see that as being in contradiction with your work, or do you see that they it's compatible, or how do you see the default mode network playing into the four characters? Well, I think default mode is still a trained program. I mean, we come into to life and the limbic cells in both hemispheres are more mature. They're present. They have made up their connections. We need fight flight. We need to be able to squeal when we're hungry uh, to communicate. There's a pain in my gut. So I squeal like a little pig saying, mama, give me food. Um, or somebody pinches me and, um, uh, you know, and I learn quickly that every time that person comes in, they pinch me. I don't like that person. I don't like that person. I learn quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this is essentially becomes the 
default of my emotional limbic cells. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the circuitry of the uh, thinking portions of my brain, uh, those cells are in position, but the connections are not made between them, which is mm -hmm. why over time the brain gets bigger. It's because the connections between those cognitive cells begin to connect and I, mm -hmm. I gain my programs. Um, and, and my programs are going to be based on what's stimulated and what's stimulated is going to be based on the programming of those people around me. And then I gain new circuitry because I learned that if I behave like this, then I get rewarded. So I'm going to do more of that. And, um, nobody has any value for, for other circuits inside of me. And so those cells actually die away. So in the course of the first two to three years, literally half of the cells are going to disappear. So mm -hmm. isn't that lovely? We're born with twice as many cells as we need. And then over the course of those first few years, what gets stimulated, they get in connection, they become a part of our default mode, as you will. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, from there, we just we just build program on top of program on top of program. So, um, you know, what happens if I what happens if I get drunk? Well, if I get drunk, everybody goes sloshy, the cells themselves are intoxicated. So mm -hmm. I'm intoxicated. Um, was that a good experience? Mm, some people might say yes. And oh, yeah, I want to do that again. And it's like, mm, uh, not so much from a cellular perspective. So, so you know, I, 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 to me, the default mode is going to be completely dependent on my programming of my early years. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not all one big thing. It's still these this, these differentiated groups of cells. Mm -hmm. So let's be more specific and say, okay, when I do this, what am I actually doing at a cellular level? And um, I'm going to go right back to when I read books that have all these great ideas, but they don't really distinguish or differentiate between the different halves of the brain and they treat the brain like it's one big thing and that there's emotional tissue and there's thinking tissue and we're not discriminating between what are the differences between these two hemispheres, which are 100% completely separate from one another in that they do not share any cell bodies mm -hmm. except for a few 300 million axonal fibers connecting through the corpus callosum. These are two completely different entities that process information in uniquely different ways. We have to go back to the fundamental. Mm -hmm. So that's what I have to say about it all. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you very much for your time, for your insight, for everything. Thank you, Eric. I knew I was going to enjoy my time with you. I knew we'd go deep in a lot of different places, and I really appreciate that. It was an excellent conversation. You asked me what did I want? I got what I wanted. <laughs> Beautiful. Great. Thank you. Well, we'll, we'll be in touch. I hope you did as well. No, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Uh, yeah. Got a lot out of it. Got a lot of it. And Perfect. Things, things to think about for, for quite a while after this. So Good. Thank you, yeah. dear. No, thank you. Mm. Okay. I appreciate you. We'll be in touch. I appreciate you. Okay. Thank you very bye -bye. much. Bye.